So this is a tweet that we think really taps into the cultural moments of what's happening in society. And it's from our own Jade Hayden, who is a writer with her.ie. So Ash Jade Hayden tweeted, the promos from Love Island 2005 are giving me a stress migraine. And then... Oh, was this the, the, the throwback to 2000, yes. 2005? And then you see the <gasps> likes Best of Callum Best. <laughs> Welcome to Girls With Goals. I'm Neve Marr and we are coming to you from the UK this week. I'm delighted to introduce our panel to studio. I dragged her.ie's publisher, Gillian Fitzpatrick, with me. And we're also joined by presenter, filmmaker and the UK editor of Mashable, Anne-Marie Tomchak. Ladies, you're very welcome to the show. So before we kick things off, it's time to play our favourite game. It's called Six Words or Less and it's for our listeners and our readers of her.ie who may not know who you are. So Gillian, you've been on the podcast a bunch of times mm-hmm. so you don't get to play the game oh no so um <laughs> oh, but, can I can you just like say six words just for me for my benefit I've got I've got a fun <laughs> thing to do right because Gillian has done this a couple of times and I was thinking okay we're not going to have six words or less but we're going to still put her on the spot because that's the whole point of the game okay. it's really just for my enjoyment enjoyment so why don't you tell us something about yourself that nobody knows Nobody knows. That nobody knows, yeah. Or that nobody people have largely work. forgotten about. Yeah, so maybe something from like your childhood or something. Amory, you can be thinking about your six words now. I'm well, thinking I was counting my fingers. Great, okay. But you know what, I, I always say that my, my media career started back when I was in, in UCD and I, I was a reporter on the University Observer. Um, but actually, strictly speaking, I did have a little flirtation with the industry before that. Um, when I was in first year college, second year college, and I was... Um, studying English and classics uh, in UCD and I was obviously considering ways that I might get a bit of extra money for heading out and clothes and all the usual things that you, you need as a student and my cousin who was an actor said to me you know they're always looking for extras on Fair City and I was thinking no. well, that sounds like a great job so there's this whole period of Fair City maybe running for about two years many many dozens of episodes where you can see a little bit of my head or my hand how many episodes are we talking dozens. Oh, it was so well paid as well so I would go Brilliant. along to RT, I'd spend the day there, <laughs> do a bit of college work, bring some books, do some study. You know we're going to be doing some reading, could you actually yeah, focus while that was yeah. going on? Well, we were largely in the green room, like obviously waiting to go out onto mm. set and then you'd just be called. And mm. yeah, I mean, it was it was a long day, but as I said, great money when you're 18, 19. So you are a college. professional extra. I think I, yeah, it could have been my other path, my other career path in life. Had, you know everybody in Maxim Media is going to go and dig up like <laughs> Gillian's elbow, Gillian's forehead. Jillian's nose. That yeah. was a great piece of information. Okay. Thank you. And I will be using that against you. <laughs> and Marie, six words or less, please. Can you describe yourself? Six words or less. Okay. Fierce, Longford, woman living in London. Six yes! Words. I love that. It was kind of descriptive and emotive at the same time. <laughs> I really liked it. Okay, so we're going to talk about both of your careers and digital media in general a little bit later on. But first... The robots are coming. So, Anne-Marie, you produced and presented a documentary recently on artificial intelligence. It's called, Will a Robot Steal My Job? So this is a question that 
I didn't actually think that I would ever have to ask myself. Um, but after watching your documentary, I am asking myself. So tell me, why did you want to make something like this in the first place? Right, well, um, I, I wasn't the producer. I can't take credit for producing it, but mm-hmm. I did present it and I would have had a, a strong journalistic yeah. and editorial input on it. But uh, I was approached by a woman called Jean Devlin, who's a producer uh, back in Ireland, uh, Animal Productions. And uh, as part of uh, RTE's Science Week with Science Foundation Ireland, they were making a documentary about robots uh, and the workforce. Mm-hmm. And I'd already made uh, an hour long TV documentary the year before uh, as part of Science Week as well. It was uh, ca- called Cloud Control, Who Owns Your Data? So it was all about big data, yeah. our digital fingerprints. Obviously, it's become a very topical issue uh, this year in light of the Facebook Cambridge Analytica crisis. So tech and digital and robotics and AI automation, all of those topics are things that I'm covering in Mashable on a daily basis. Yeah. So it was quite a natural fit for someone like myself to step in uh, from my role uh, in Mashable and front this documentary. Yeah as we're reporting on artificial intelligence every day of the week in Mashable, you know, we're looking at like the world through the prism of technology. Uh, And this specifically looked at how the workforce was going to be impacted by robotics and automation and artificial intelligence. Now, all of those things are are linked to each other, but there's a perception that artificial intelligence is in lots of things it isn't necessarily in. Uh, For example, chatbots, like if you're on Facebook Messenger and you're chatting away with a bot, it's not necessarily an AI. It might not necessarily uh, be able to learn and then learn from you and um, add extra information. But if you think of something like uh, your personal home assistant, like Amazon Alexa, that can learn things about you. And then it can actually build up a more personalised experience. Like, say, for example, if there's certain things that you order in your food shop every week uh, by talking to your Amazon Alexa at home, it'll learn then that there are certain foods that you like or that there are certain products uh, or things that you might, it suggests that you might want. Uh, But this documentary was about the workforce and how it's going to be impacted by automation. I went off on a bit of a tangent No, that's okay. I find it so fascinating. Yeah, Um, but in terms of the actual like career prognosis, so what kind of jobs are we talking about then? What kind of careers are going to be impacted in say, are we talking 20 years or are we talking 70 years? Uh, we're talking now. Uh, oh. Jobs are already being impacted now, including our own. Crap. Right. So <laughs> uh, in the documentary, one of the, the most obvious areas to look at is in the area of transportation, uh, self-driving cars. So in the US alone, up to four million jobs are going to be impacted. Truckers, li- lorry drivers, uh, people who drive uh, cabs, uh, taxis. Uh, so uh, that's because of the uh, development of self-driving cars and that type of technology. Uh, so they, they are potentially going to be impacted. Uh, if you think of freight as well, in the US, a large country where they're moving uh, mm-hmm. goods from one place to the other on the road, that's also going to be impacted largely. Um, but then it's there's a perception that, you know, uh, AI or robotics will affect, say, the factory floor. And that is true to a certain degree. Yes, there are machines that are coming and they're taking over certain processes. But actually, it's not just uh, blue collar workers that are going to be affected by automation, uh, by robotics. Uh, very, you know, very specific jobs um, like journalists, uh, white collar jobs like uh, lawyers, doctors, solicitors. Those kind of roles are also being impacted. Bankers, you know, there have been reports that the all of Wall Street, for example, could be completely obliter- obliterated because of AI, yeah. where eventually artificial 
artificial intelligence can conduct a lot of these roles. What I would say, having looked into the area uh, in great detail for the documentary, is that yes, there are certain aspects of people's jobs that will be taken. Some people's entire jobs will become completely redundant and it will be handed over to a robot to do. But there will be new jobs created and there will be new uh, or, you know, kind of a change in the type of jobs that we do. So let's take my job, for example, journalism. In the in the documentary, I went to a football match, and uh, I had to uh, decipher between a piece of journalism that was produced by a machine and that written by a human at the event, reporting on on a news event. And um, the 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 machine that was being used was uh, something called automated insights, uh, language processing, where you can you know report in the details and produce like a written news report about mm-hmm. the event and then the person was this guy who who's really passionate about the game and uh, you know knew a lot about the various teams involved but I have to say when I read uh, each of them I knew which was one was from the human yeah but I was really really impressed with what the robot could do uh, because the sentences sounded very human the language processing involved actually was very uh, it was finessed you know yeah. to a way that sounded very human and and uh, you know so it wasn't passion. like it was too all yeah it was like that was proper sentences and actually okay. read really well but what I would say is that it didn't have the context or the passion or the emotion the same level of that uh, as the re- reporter had yeah um, what, I, what I thought was, was interesting and I, and I watched the documentary and I thought it was absolutely fantastic thank you um, and, and really slightly worrying but also you know utterly fascinating as well but what I thought was really interesting about that segment was that almost this was like a, a newswire service you know mm. your, your old um, service you get the Reuters or AP exactly. news flashes coming in in the newsroom because newsroom. it was yeah. and, and something that you emphasised was the speed at which this content could be created and we all know in digital spheres that out there speed is, is of huge huge importance in a way that you know my background is in newspapers and we had our, our print deadline we knew that the paper had to go to the presses at X time but there was all day to run up in between I mean at the time I thought that that was a tight deadline now and mm. When you know working on uh, exclusively on a digital platform, I realised that deadlines are just constant, uh, ever present, and that we're always trying to get you know to the great story for our users quicker than than anyone else. And and what I thought was that actually, if there was an AI way of creating great content and then that could be shot off to various publishers and media organisations, then it would be up to maybe your editors, your writers, your journalists to rinse that copy for their users and to push it out. And that would actually be really efficient. And imagine you wouldn't have to deal with holiday request forms and all that kind of stuff as well (laughs) because you're dealing with robots. But I mean, both of you are editors and like you have worked as an editor before. Would In journalism, I think that part of the documentary really stuck out to me, obviously, as a journalist. But do you ever see that becoming a reality, though? I mean, obviously, if people are looking for just that straight facts, fine. But I mean, a lot of the time people are trying to get a little bit of colour from the content that they consume. Well, I I actually think about the way in which Mashable produces content now and uh, we very much think about, right, where does the human fit within the context of the type of reporting that we're doing? Mm. Um, Contextualising the story or bringing like real personality or saying something very declarative about it. Or even if you think about like investigative reporting um, or, you know, 
doing very challenging stories. Say you're interviewing somebody who has um, undergone terrible abuse or, you know, needs a real duty of care, human to human contact and, and that editorial sensibility that you need yeah. when you're dealing with that. So there, there are certain stories that I wouldn't hand over to an artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, but I think what it does is it frees up people to do a lot of the more creative and really passionate and fun stuff uh, in their careers as well. Yeah. Um, like in Mashable, for example, we would do some uh, light and shade in the type of coverage that we do. We'd have the quick hits. You know this as well, Julian. The quick hits. But then you do you try to get in there and do something, you know, more meaty and substantial as well. And it's like a, having that and, balance. And it's interesting. I think that a lot of people, younger people and on, on, on our Herdotty audience is it's young Irish women. Um, and having grown up very much with digital content at their fingertips, we've actually seen over the last year a trend towards uh, reading the longer feature mm, pieces, definitely. the more in-depth pieces. And as you say, it's that balance of driving the numbers and driving the traffic and making sure that your site is as popular as relevant and as current as possible but you, there has to be the substance there you have to have meat behind that yeah. and I actually think that your average maybe 25, 28 year old 30 year old Irish, young Irish woman um, that's their expectation for, yeah. for what her daddy is is you know giving to them We're going to talk more about that because I feel like we're like inching towards talking about digital the media publishing industry yes, and which, the digital which I'm going to hold off on but another thing that really stuck out to me in the documentary was the man that you interviewed who, um, I think he was in politics, but he was a transhumanist and he believed yes. in transhumanism, mm-hmm. which I'm just going to let you go ahead and take okay. that. And so his, his name is Zoltan Istvan. Okay. Uh, he's a transhumanist, which is essentially a movement of people who want to, I guess, transgress the human race uh, by merging humans and machines and becoming a superhuman in in a a certain way. So like immediately I think of Robocop. Like that's just what I think of. Yeah. Straight away. (laughs) Robot person. My piece to camera during the, the sequence with him was more, interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, what What interested me about him is he was someone who we met on this beautiful beach in California. He's obviously really passionate about technology. He uh, wants to integrate technology into the, the human body as, and the human mind. You know, he has a microchip in his hand, for example, which would he uses to open his front door. That's like called uh, biohacking. So people do hack their own bodies where they can, you know, like if you even have like, say, prosthetics so in, yeah. in a way that's used using robotics to uh, advance Mm -hmm. the human condition. But he wants to take it to such a degree that, you know, we can feel mega empathy. We can feel super intelligent. We can live forever. We never die. And like, you know, my question is, do we want to be in a world where we never die? You know, so quite big existential questions uh, that he points to. But I just thought it was really ironic. And I said this to him when we were interviewing. So I'm not being duplicitous in any way uh, that he's out there enjoying the fruits of Mother mother Nature, surfing on the beach and enjoying life. Yeah, it was a very this real really life, natural, yeah. real life experience. Mm. Uh, nothing to do with machines. But then yet he's this con- contradiction where he wants to, to have forever. it all and live forever. And I just, it's a difficult one to understand. I mean, it's its contradictory in itself by saying you want to live forever, but by not being human, essentially. Gillian, mm. if you had the opportunity, if somebody came up to you tomorrow and said, I can put a chip inside of your arm that will make sure that you and your entire family live forever, in the exact same way that you are now, would you take it? No, I wouldn't. Um, I think that they're absolute fundamentals of 
of life and, and the world and that involves being born and dying and no matter how much technology advances or no matter how much the world around us changes and obviously over the last 20 years we've probably witnessed more change in terms of technology than mm. any other period in human history I mean yeah. and it's rapid and, and as Amory highlights it's only going to keep up that pace you know that acceleration is, is very much um, you know going to keep going it's, it's not slowing down yeah. um, but there are things like being born and and family and and the natural lifespan of people. I mean, medicine is obviously going to help us to live longer and and we're going to be healthier. But but where does that end? Um, And also there are lots of problems that come with that. You know, we're living longer, but then we've got dementia crises on mm -hmm. our doorstep and health service is not able to accommodate that. So it's about... uh, sustainability and scale. You know, it's one thing living forever and having a growing population yeah. but how then do you do you stop the the population from completely imploding because you know if we're all going to live forever and then the next people that are born are going to live forever as well where does the where do you draw the line I yeah. thought I thought one of the one of the saddest stories that I remember reading was from a case that was actually heard in uh, London High Court um in about October 2016 and it was um, a 14 year old girl who had who had cancer and she she knew that she was going to die she was told uh, a couple of months b- before her death that that the cancer was terminal and she was really terribly impacted by this and, and she wrote letters you know she wrote letters to the court saying that she she didn't want to die and she felt that she had so much more life to live and that she was she was frightened and what she wanted to do was to go to um, a special um, cryogenetic kind of um centre in, in Texas in the US where they preserve your body in the hope that in 100 years time, 200 years time that things, yeah, yeah. things will have advanced so much that she could have been brought back to life. Um, her parents were separated, they disagreed on whether this was going to happen or not and so she brought the case to the High Court and ultimately the judge decided that, that she she should be allowed to, if she wanted to try and live forever or at yeah. some stage come back to life, that, that she be allowed that opportunity. It cost 50000 Euro for her parents to do that, um, but it's really a, a really, I mean, the morals that come and the ethical questions that come with a case like that are absolutely but I would profound. Say that she, for like you know her last days, then she probably had hope, and I mean, who are we to say you can't hope to live forever if you don't want to? But I mean, I think it's interesting because in the documentary as well, there was a lot of emotion that was attached to this kind of idea of artificial intelligence, mm. and there was, you know, the sex role robots where mm. it wasn't just about the sex a lot of it was about um, companionship companionship and, and, and relationship dealing with, relationships yeah. and loneliness and, and this yeah. kind of thing and then as well there was the man that you interviewed who um, his father was going to pass away mm. and so there's that whole element of artificial intelligence as yeah. well. I can which... tap into that a bit if you want me sure, to. So yeah. the guy who they interviewed about uh, uh, Dadbot, uh, Dad there's a guy Bot, called yeah. James Vlahos. He lives in California and uh, his father uh, died of cancer and he was making a, he worked in the um, journalism sphere as well, mm-hmm. um, writing for publications like Wired, uh, similar to Ma- very similar to Mashable. And um, he was actually building a bot, like a chat bot. Uh, at the time. And then uh, his father was diagnosed with a terminal illness. And so he um, made the bot into essentially his dad, yeah. where he recorded a lot of conversations with his dad. And, you know, uh, meaning that if you enter in, you know, a text on this 
chatbot, like like a text message, the reply would come back with something phrased in the way that his father would speak. Wow. So it wasn't like his father's voice mm. talking back to him, but it was text written back in a message that would sound very like something his right. father would say, yeah. like, oh, do you remember that time we went for ice cream with mum in that place in Santa Monica or something yeah. like that? And then the dad could reply back, yes, that was in X, Y and Z. So, you know, building up a whole catalogue of uh, the years and years of his dad's life. And it was really interesting interviewing him because... His father was only dead a very short period of time by the time I went to meet him. Mm -hmm. So I was obviously extremely conscious of the fact that he was still grieving. Yeah. And I didn't want to exploit that. But at the same time, what he had done was very, very interesting and he wanted to talk about it too. It was quite cathartic for him to actually talk about this and feel acknowledged and heard uh, about what had happened to him and to his family, but also have this product or this, uh, you know, uh, part of his dad on an app or on a chatbot that it was a way of memorialising his dad in the afterlife in a yeah. way which I think poses really interesting questions because we're all laying a digital fingerprint uh, day by day with what we do on the internet or how we search online or you know what kind of transactions we have in the bank and so we are going to leave a vault of all of this digital material yeah. that is us our memories and you know the question is is that going to be become like the new shrine to us? In well, our, there is in an episode afterlife. of Black Mirror, which is very much like that. You know, mm. it's the one that Donald Gleeson is is in and he he dies and his partner then is able to take all of the, the digital framework and the voice. And of course, it's Black Mirror, so it mm. gets crazy and mm. he 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 wakes up and it gets really creepy then after a while. But I mean, it's it's that kind of thing of like, if you're not ready to say goodbye to someone mm. yet, there are ways that you can not say goodbye to them yet. But it does pose a lot of interesting questions. Some of them as in, well, yeah. are you really dealing well, with... I, I like you could yeah. get a bit... You could, you could start doing, you know, you could get a bit overly attached to the bot of your grandmother, for example, and yeah. just keep going into it every day in a way that might become unhealthy. Yeah. But I guess it's no different to going to a, a graveyard and laying some flowers. It's just if it's you just ended up obsessing yeah. and going there every day because it's just on your fingertips, on your phone, I guess yeah. the, the boundary there is... The, the journalist in me, I've, I've long said... To to my husband, you know, if anything happens to me in a really dramatic capacity or if I like make news, like I always say, like, like we should get a pack together. So like these are the issues, these are the pictures that I want issued to national media. This is like a video segment wow, that you're you very can prepared to like or tea. <laughs> so that's like morbid. That's morbid, then, but also very, very, like, uh, here are all the passwords to my planning. social media. I want this to be all shut down. This and, and just kind of, you know, just to help that transition if something really mm. dramatic happened to me. Yeah, mm. well, I mean, it is is interesting to think about our own digital kind of fingerprints and what we're leaving behind. Before we take a break and move on, I do want to just circle back to the workforce element. So mm. how can people, if they haven't watched this documentary, you can go, you can watch it on the RTE player. It's very, very interesting. I really think that you should go and watch it and oh, see if, you. if your job pops up. Well, <laughs> I just learned a lot from it. You know what was interesting? I thought what was interesting with the documentary was that everyone felt they were immune. You know, everyone. Oh, yeah. everyone, oh I was like, everyone's going to need my journalism. Exactly. No, so it was a case so. of, yes, I accept that the robots are indeed coming yeah. and that absolutely these machines are going to start encroaching into our work lives. Yeah, I know. However, now nah, what I do, not a chance. Like the taxi driver. Well, even driver, the taxi driver, I yeah. I provide great. a service. He was like, I provide a service. <laughs> I help you get your bags out of the yeah. car and I'll give you local knowledge about, you know, where exactly. to go. I and, know. But, um, but I mean, if, if people were to say, okay, well, nobody is immune to the rate of 
technology. Nobody mm. is. Mm. So what did you kind of come away from being a mm. part of that? And what would you say to people if you're trying to prepare for not the takeover of robots? I don't want to scare people mm. now and I don't want to mm. scare monger either. But I mean, what would you give in terms of tips for being prepared that this is probably going to be happening. Um, I think that it is happening. Ultimately, with careers, it's still really important to go for what you're passionate about Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, also uh, be thinking about those kind of skills that are more difficult to, you know, replicate with technology, like empathy, creativity, those things that make us quintessentially human, you know, those skills, uh, the relationships that you build up, but also embracing the technology. I use artificial intelligence uh, every day in my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a tool called Velocity, um, which is an AI tool that can mine millions of internet uh, URLs every day, uh, process them and uh, filter them down in a way where we can see what's picking up steam. Uh, and, you know, it has predictive technology around uh, what stories are picking up traction in your region. And then I would use AI to monitor the performance of some of the stories that we've published and whether certain headlines are working well. So it's about working and collaborating with mm-hmm. machines and it doesn't have to spell the end of your role or or your goals or your objectives but I would say that it uh, signifies a big change in the way you'll approach them. So move with the times but maybe don't be a transhumanist just yet. And don't be don't be afraid of yeah. the tech. I think like, yeah, I, I love love the way you, you have a very sensible approach, which I felt I had after making the documentary. Yeah. But when I first went into the pre-production phase of this doc, I was thinking more along the lines of Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking, where I was thinking, <laughs> wow, the, the robots are coming, artificial intelligence, as uh, <laughs> uh, you know, superhumans. Oh, yeah, like I was thinking Will Smith, I was thinking yeah, Will Smith all, Bicentennial Man. We're all going to just live in bubbles <laughs> in our heads, in pods and communicate with each other through like some ether and you know but by the end of making the doc I felt having talked to lots of sensible people who knew a lot about it what struck me was there's such a wide diversity of viewpoints there are the Elon Musk's view you know out there and then there's the pragmatists who are like yeah this is like no different than you know industrial revolution 2.0 where we had massive changes to processes and to the way human beings uh, lived their daily lives but in effect enhanced their lives yeah incredible watch the documentary You'll learn a lot. Okay, so we are going to take a quick break now for our spotlight on sport. Kate Kirby is the head of performance psychology with the Irish Institute of Sport. I caught up with her earlier in the week to discuss what it's really like inside the mind of an elite athlete. I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Kate Kirby, the head performance psychologist with the Sport Ireland Institute. Kate, let's talk about your own background a little bit before we get into the nitty gritty of sports performance and psychology. So did you have an interest in sport from an early age? Yeah, I was sports mad growing up. Um, I guess I specialised probably in hockey as my team sport. And I would have played through school and university and and club hockey. Um, And I also sailed internationally. Um, Probably I, I sailed from when I was a baby, more or less, um, and I, I would have competed internationally up till I was about 20. So I kind of love that mix of team and individual sport, um, and, and I was delighted that I pursued it the whole way through school and college. And how important was sports psychology to you then as an international athlete? Um, <laughs> I wish I'd known more about it, to be honest. It, it, <clears throat> it was definitely something that was one of the things that held me back in my career was not being was strong enough mentally in, in certain aspects so I, I would have had a very bad temper um, I think my mum on the sideline had some painful moments seeing me shouting at umpires and giving out to myself and yeah. 
it probably wasn't until my late teens that I became aware of it. Um, before that, I kind of assumed that I was born with that temper and that temperament, fiery temperament, and I couldn't do anything about it. And actually, it was when I realized that it was a choice to behave in that way and that, you know, I, I could choose to focus on other things or I could cope by problem solving instead of having emotional outbursts, that that made a really big difference, more so to my enjoyment of sport than my performance, to be honest. It was just, you know, I liked it more when I became less angry. Yeah, it's funny because like I've been kind of called angry at times when I played sports as well, and I I used to <laughs> I used to equate having a temper with having that kind of competitive edge, and I I do want to talk about that competitive edge in a minute. But can you tell me about the yeah. work that you do specifically with Sport Ireland Institute at the moment? Then, uh, so I oversee the delivery of sports psychology across Olympic sports, and um, so I deliver into some sports myself. I've been working with sailing. Um, modern pentathlon badminton for many years and since I joined the institute about 18 months ago I've been looking after some new sports like uh, rowing and uh, athletics and canoeing and sports that I wouldn't have worked in historically Um, and so I I suppose in, in the institute most of our preparation is geared towards the next big Olympics which for us is Tokyo 2020 yeah. um, so already we're kind of on that journey um, sailing is the first sport that has a qualification opportunity this year uh, they have their qualifiers in August so we're already looking forward to 2020 and even beyond that and in terms of training and stuff with these um, athletes who are obviously incredibly elite athletes what weight is given to um, sports psychology and, and kind of performance in comparison to their training in the gym, for example? I've been working in the area for about 12 years and I see a much greater acceptance for athletes to talk about sports psychology and to, to ask for help in the area. You know, that, that idea of, you know, you just need to be really mentally tough and really mentally strong in order to succeed. It still exists, but people recognise that it, it doesn't just happen by accident. And so in, in terms of contact time, I, I probably wouldn't see some of the athletes I work with as often as their strength and conditioning coach or their physio might. So on average, I probably would touch, you know, would, would have contact time with my athletes once or twice a month, whereas you would have a physio or a strength and conditioning coach who, who would be seeing them on a weekly basis. And what do you think are the key attributes, rather, that make a mentally strong athlete? Oh, I think, you know, there, there probably isn't a, a defined personality as such, but I can see, I, I see certain behaviours in, in people. The first thing I think they have to love what they do and not necessarily love winning, but love the pursuit of what they're trying to achieve because, you know, you're going to have bad days. Um, and if you're only invested in winning, it becomes very hard to deal with those. But if you're invested in improving yourself and getting better week on week or month on month, then your longevity and the other thing I see with world-class athletes is their willingness to accept feedback but also they go out of their way to seek feedback and instead of taking it personally they see you know maybe negative feedback or criticism as a a potential for um, improvement and growth rather than as an, an attack on their person and so they they tend not to be as defensive and that's a really good attribute for I suppose that applies across life it applies to us in in the working world um, in you know in in your relationship so that openness to honest and constructive feedback and taking it and doing something good with it when you get it absolutely they're really important attributes I've seen with with successful athletes 
And how important do you think, Kate, sports psychology is for younger athletes? You said yourself that it, it kind of maybe your temper hampered your own sports career when you were growing up. So, I mean, do you think that we should be talking to kids at a younger age who are getting into sports much younger? But of course, without putting a huge amount of pressure on them as well, I suppose you have to contend with that. Yeah, I think, um, funnily enough, is a conversation I had last week because I was invited into a primary school to give a talk to their uh, first to sixth class assembly. And... I thought it was brilliant that their PE teacher had recognised that this is something that might help, you know, at pre-teens. Um, and, and it's definitely a younger group than I would have been used to working with. But they really engaged with it. And I kept it really simple. We just talked about nerves and, you know, if you're, before a match or a race, if you're butterflies in your tummy or your heart is racing and you're worried, that's OK. Yeah. It's OK to feel like that. Everyone feels like that. And to normalise that experience and to you know so already at that young age they're not fearing it they're going okay this is just part of the competitive process and Usain Bolt feels like this or Johnny Sexton feels like this and it's okay that I feel like this so even at that young age they definitely got some simple messages that they said were helpful to them Um, in a more structured way I would probably usually come in working with the development athletes in sports kind of when they're in their mid-teens probably is when we start bringing in mental skills into the training and competition environment or probably an education package and a, and a progression towards their, their senior athletic career. And finally, Kate, before I let you go, can you give us some tips or strategies for people who are perhaps trying to reach a higher level of performance, be that an elite athlete or someone who maybe goes to the gym once a week and who's just trying to get their absolute best out of a performance? Um, Yeah, I think you have to focus on the process of what you're doing. If you're overly concerned about the outcome and thinking ahead to like six months time or a year's time, it's easy to lose motivation. So if you, if you every day or every time you turn up to training, you focus on what you need to do on that day to get better, then you'll, you'll find that sessions link be- better to each other, but also you won't struggle as much with little setbacks. Like if you haven't reached the, you know, the speed or the time or the reps or the weights that you were hoping for, then, you know, it's, if, you're, if you're looking ahead to tomorrow, it's easier to deal with than if you're looking ahead to six months' time. So try and just stay in the present moment more so than thinking ahead to the future all the time. So, um, and then the other, the simple one I mentioned around if you have anxiety around uh, performance and competition, um, it's okay. Don't try, and, don't try and get rid of it. It's just your body responding to a situation that is important to you because you've invested time and effort into it. And watch the temper as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Try and keep that in check. Dr. Kate Kirby, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Okay, so we're back. So print versus digital media. It's the ultimate battleground across the media landscape. But is it a battle if there's a clear winner. That's so bad of me to say that straight away. But anyway, so in the last year... Did you write that yourself? I did. Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. So in the last year, Enemy closed its doors after almost seven decades. Look magazine as well closed. Sales of top 100 magazines have declined by more than half in the UK and Ireland since 2000. So it's obviously something that is 
current, it's happening, we're in it, we're all working in digital media at the moment. Gillian, you started in a traditional newsroom, so you were in the Daily Mail mm-hmm. uh, in 2007, so you worked there for seven years. Was digital always something that you had on the brain or was it something that you weren't even really aware of in 2007? Like, remember it was Celtic Tiger, everybody was having the crack in Crystal, like... Um, in 2007, absolutely, newspaper sales in Ireland were robust, to say Booming. the least. Yeah. Absolutely. And for a small country, we had a lot of titles um, and those titles broadly sold really, really well. Um, so, uh, no, I wouldn't say in 2007 I was thinking digitally at all. Okay. Um, but then shortly afterwards, the recession did hit. And what a lot of newspapers would have felt is that their very lucrative property sections, for example, were no longer in existence. Um, advertising was obviously, you know, absolutely been halved in, in many publications. Um, and people were buying fewer newspapers because things were moving online. So I'd say it was maybe 2008, 2009, as early as that, that you could just feel that the energy I felt was was coming out of some of the, the newspaper industry. Like I do remember in 2007 having that kind of feeling of being invincible and chasing great stories and it was all tribunals and politicians and builders and brown envelopes and tribunals and everything. It was all great. Lots was, of tribunals. Was all that, was that was around the time when um, um, you know, there was this sense of everything is just it's a gravy train. Uh, pro- everyone was like trying to buy a property because the prices were going several up, properties. Up, 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 up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Didn't we have like the most number of helicopter helicopter uh, pads per capita Privately than anywhere owned, en- else so, in the yeah. world? Yeah, which I think is an astounding statistic. Mm. Um, and then 2008 came along and just the bubble burst, and it was yeah. like everything. And crashed. then on the front page, it was just like the bankers coming in, like you Troika, know, like yeah, it, the Troika coming it, in. It, it changed definitely. everything. It did. It 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 absolutely changed. And I suppose Ireland was was quite um, significant, you know, in global economies. It was a fairly a catastrophic crash that, that the country weathered. Um, and, and interesting because although recession did hit in 2008, it wasn't until 2010 that the Troika actually came in. Yeah. And that probably was when they implemented the the really severe cutbacks that had a massive impact on, on people's lives. So in many ways... I, I, quite an exciting time to be a journalist mm-hmm. but unfortunately the the industry I felt wasn't matching my own ambitions and yeah. and I felt that there there had to be something more there had to be another platform out there that could reward me better for you know what I wanted to achieve in my career um so around this time um mail online would have been established and started to gain a bit of momentum um and probably being part of the the daily mail family I was definitely keeping one eye on that um and 2013 came a um, few milestones in that year at the end of the year I turned 30 I'd had my my daughter my first child at the beginning of that year and it felt like just a time of change and that and that was the year that I decided right I'm going to leave newspapers I'm going to get out there I'd only ever worked uh, in one newsroom as well and I and I thought that you know I need to immerse myself in, in other areas um, Were you afraid? So- Did you feel like your journalism would translate. I don't know whether that makes sense as a question, but like, were you afraid of going into a digital newsroom as opposed to like the hustle and bustle of a traditional newsroom, essentially? Yeah, and look, you know, that's a question that people still ask me now. Yeah. You know, how does it compare or, you know, it, it, do you have a preference for one versus the other? I think at this stage, absolutely, in Maximum Media, there is as much energy and excitement and old school journalistic grit than there there was, um, you know, 10 
10 years ago in a, in a newsroom absolutely give the guards probably, a call give the guards, give the guards yeah, a call yeah precisely but you know that probably took time mm. um, the first digital newsrooms were more functional or they were an arm of a print publication um, and were probably looked like there's still probably it's a bit a of hierarchy yeah I was yeah. just going to say it's yeah. a snobbery you know there's definitely yeah. still a snobbery like print but now they're all digital. like you know Tell us how it all works. Knocking, knocking on the door. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, but look, I, you know, I always say if you're a great editor, a great journalist, it doesn't actually matter what platform you're producing content for. That could be a written piece that's going in a glossy magazine. It could be a Sunday newspaper. It could be a tabloid um, or it could be seated out on social or, you know, via site. Um, if you've got what it takes and great content, I think, is actually being celebrated now more and more so uh, than then it doesn't really matter if you're pressing publish on a website yeah. or if you're sending a, an actual page to the printing presses. Yeah. Um, but look, we all know digital is where it's at now, as you highlighted. Magazine sales are certainly going down. Newspaper sales are are absolutely massively down. Is there enough room and is there the appetite there from readers for all these titles to continue? I don't think so. I think certain titles have shut and closed. And the reality is, is that they will that will continue. There are other titles that will will just drop off, you know. Um, the, the readers aren't there for them. I want to come back to kind of the way in which um, print publications are kind of advertising themselves at the moment. But Anne-Marie, let's talk about your career path mm. a little bit and how you got to the position that you're in today, which mm. is editor, obviously, of Mashable in the UK. So, I mean, like I asked Gillian, was digital the kind of... Is it the golden goose or is that... Did I just make that up? End goal? Uh, yeah, yeah, I could totally. say yeah, yeah. I feel like the word digital is something that's used in old media organisations. Like, because yeah. everything's digital now, you know? I know. Like, it's um, like saying new media. Like, yeah, it's not new yeah, anymore. Yeah, it's yeah, or even around. just saying social media. It's, yeah. like, it's just like a way of communicating. Yeah. Uh, my background was very much in broadcasting mm-hmm. up until uh, I entered Mashable. Um, however, I worked across radio for about five and a half years in the RTE newsroom. I started off on 2FM, reading the overnight news bulletins, right, producing yes. the news for Anne Doyle and Eileen Dunn on Radio Newsroom. 1. I used to report for um, Sean O'Rourke on the News at 1 when he was then presenter on that show. And I uh, worked at Anya Lawler and, you know, uh, Cahill McQuillia and all these other uh, great presenters. Um, I was a reporter on Morning Ireland. So I, I felt like I did hit the ground running yeah. in some respects in terms of broadcasting in, in a national mm-hmm. uh, demographic um, or a national landscape, shall I say. Uh, but at the same time, I think when you start in a newsroom and a national newsroom as one of the younger people Mm. you're trying to find your way to kind of like transgress into that next level and so about five and a half years in I felt like I was ready for the next thing but I just didn't know how to push through so I uh, it was around 2010 around the the time of that crash the aftermath of the crash and things were you know really rough Uh, I was freelancing and a lot of my freelancing shifts in RTE had had, uh, dried up Mm. Uh, but uh, it was a really exciting time to be a journalist and so I'd had all sorts of international um, organisations knocking on my door asking me to become like a a correspondent for them so I was reporting for like American public media NPR in the States um, Deutsche Welle Radio um, Radio Netherlands lands and then the BBC World Service as well. So uh, my portfolio became much more global mm. through that turbulent period. And it got me really thinking, you know, I think I'd love to work in a, a global news environment. So in 2010, I moved over to London and uh, just totally hustled. I went over for a week of meetings, had absolutely no idea how to get a job in media in uh, the UK and uh, just talked to everyone I knew, people I'd worked with who I'd made coffee for, people yeah. who, you know, friend of a friend in PR, radio, publishing 
doing um, uh, television and I, I eventually heard of an opportunity going in the BBC World newsroom. So in 2010, I did an interview for a job there and I became a producer of, you know, one of the biggest global news organisations in the world. I think it's the biggest. Um, and it was a very exciting time to be a journalist uh, in the international um, journalism scene because this was around the time of the tsunami in Japan, uh, the uh, Libya crisis, Gaddafi uh, being captured, uh, the Syria crisis had kicked off then, you know, the Arab Spring was happening. Yeah. So it was a very, very interesting period to be um, in a, a newsroom like that with such a global reach. And I felt like I had to go right back to basics again, everything I knew as a journalist, I was a good journalist, but I had to put, cast all of that to one side so that I could learn how to actually cut pictures and write headlines and generate Astons on the screen and, you know, do to work with graphics producers and, you know, artists to create all the animations mm. on the screen and lots of different things that were going on. And then I, my aspirations were to get back into being on air, but I wanted to learn all the nuts and bolts of live television production before doing that to okay. be confident. And in around 2013, I just got married. I felt like I did all of the heavy lifting, the donkey work in the newsroom. I'd literally done every shift going. Right. And I said to uh, the scheduling manager at the time, listen, I've literally done everything. Can I can I work on this OB slot? It was a, there was a live OB, uh, outside broadcast. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a very jargony term. <laughs> uh, basically like doing a live um, uh, shoot every day uh, as part of the two flagship programmes that went out on BBC World News. I was like, can I produce this? You know, it's not going to get me on air, but at the same time, at least I'll be doing something that I'll learn more and I'll be really interested in. And he was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get you this slot. You have really actually, you know, earned your stripes. I've done three years of everything at that stage. And the first day I was on the gig, the presenter went sick. So the editor on duty that day knew I had a background uh, reading the news in RTE and said, would you like to do it? So it's like one of those scenes from a movie where I was like, quick, quick, does anyone have a blazer? (laughs) (laughs) Put a blazer on and, you know, put a bit of powder on. I was producing the segment as well. and literally did it live on air uh, to millions of people globally in BBC World News and where anything can go wrong and you're doing talk talk back and you have your earpiece in and you know like completely novice learning completely on the job had never done any real camera work you know I'd worked completely in radio all of that time but then the the horse had bolted the precedent had been set and then I kept getting asked to do more filling in you know and then I got noticed by some of the commissioners It's a serious occasion to rise to isn't it? Yeah and it just kept my cool I look back in those days I was so wooden though you know I wasn't very relaxed but I just they still liked um, my approach and personality on air and uh, I was doing a lot of work around um social video and mobile video around then and it does it seems like oh publishing a video from a mobile phone to a Facebook page sounds so rudimentary now but in 2013 the idea of simultaneously publishing UGC or user generated content yeah. you know behind the scenes stuff that was actually really innovative at that time and so they noticed I was doing a lot of this stuff and uh, they asked me would I like to pilot a new format which was uh, to become BBC Trending which was like a social media investigative unit we were using analytics tools to chart the um, the route of, of trends online. Like if a hashtag had started, like let's say it's Bring Back Our Girls, who actually was the first person to start that hashtag? Wow, Where okay. in the world were they? Yeah. Like geolocating the communities around these, you know, big move, social movements. So we covered a, a huge amount of stories. Um, we launched that in 2013 and it was a massive success. Uh, I had my own show on the BBC World Service, a weekly radio programme, did lots of live television across the BBC and different outlets and front of their videos was launched as the face of BBC Trending. Um, but I found it was such a, a, a beautiful time actually in media because it was a time when 
social media was still something that wasn't like completely and utterly integrated into every part of the newsroom but people were really had a big appetite for it and there were so many different social movements starting uh, then like Black Lives Matter and mm. you know Gaza under attack um, Kim Kardashian breaking the internet so many different stories but we would report on them from a really global point of view we'd look at the Rolaginhas going on in Brazil you know really exciting stories so I felt very, very lucky to be in the newsroom at that stage and to be able to use, you know, all of the various language services that the BBC had, whether it's tapping into a trend, you know, a Chinese trend on Weibo and yeah. being able to look at cultural things going on in that part of the world or parts of Africa, you know, so it was brilliant. So was when, brilliant. when you were in the BBC, then obviously the kind of analytics and, mm. and the, the tech side of things mm. was really coming to the forefront. Mm. So it wasn't really like you were stepping into Mashable completely cold. Obviously, No, this I was... stepped into Mashable as someone who had lived and breathed the internet yeah. for years and knew a lot about the inner workings of, you know, online. I think a lot of people think that if you just spend a lot of time on the internet or on Reddit, you, you get the internet. Yeah. That's actually not really the case. No. And I think I was very privileged to be able to actually have first point of contact with a lot of people and communities and influencers before this whole Instagram generation yeah. of influencers existed. You know, the kind of grassroots movements around uh, political campaigns or social campaigns or the cartel in, in Mexico, how they were using the, you know, the internet yeah. to get their message across. Very interesting ar- arenas. So, so when Mashable came knocking on my door in 2016, um, I was not looking to leave the BBC. I was on a really strong trajectory there. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a great uh, time to actually move into something new when you're not running away from something, when you're walking towards something Definitely. rather than running away from something else. Yeah. And the more I'd looked at what Mashable was doing, the more I saw that they really, really got the internet yeah. and they really know how to use every platform in a very bespoke way to that specific space. And I loved the reporting on technology. I'm really passionate about tech. Yeah. Um, so it felt like a really natural fit for me. I think when you're an, when you're an editor or a producer or a journalist, mm. you inherently are quite obsessive and you're quite mm. dogged. Mm. You know, you want to go after the detail. You want to get the line that nobody else has. And you don't take no for an answer if you believe that there's something else there that you that you want to get your hands on. And in many ways, that plays very well into online activity mm. and, um, you know, like the algorithms and really getting to grips with those and, and traffic and, you know, all, the, all these, I suppose, detail that come with um, operation and digital landscape, actually those inherent skills that you might have from more traditional media background, yeah. you're really rewarded for them yeah. then when, uh, in yeah. additional capacity. I love how you use the word obsess as well because that's actually part of our mantra like obsess with us. Uh, Mashable yeah. is for the super fans, not for the casually curious that's like, you know, our kind of our, you know opening gambit because well, yeah. we are for the super fans we give people that bit extra you know they've already read all of the generalist news and the headlines and they want to know like all of the details I and, think it's and specialist brands actually yeah. like that and, and, and that's an interesting way that some some traditional media is booking the trend if you have something that's really specialist if you ch- if, if you champion something a little bit more niche or you have really good expert insight um, these are the types of publishers and media organisations that at the moment are really being rewarded mm. and maybe it's the it's the ones that are a little bit too generic and a little bit too wishy-washy or don't have that strong presence and a strong tone of voice um, and they're the ones that are, are probably struggling at the moment. I mean like we talk about things like obsessions and we, we talk about things like algorithms and I want to go back and talk about that because for our 
readers of her.ie and for our listeners as well who may not understand the kind of changes that have happened with social in terms of algorithms and, and stuff I think it's important to teach that as well um, but I remember Gillian we had a conversation a while ago about the kind of ways in which traditional media are combating um, this influx in, in the kind of online space and world and a lot of them are are tapping into nostalgia and a lot of them are tapping into 2013 which is not that long ago but it was like <laughs> do you remember 2013 when we weren't completely attached to our phones like we, we don't want you to swipe away from us we want you to pick us up and like all mm. I don't actually know if well, that is a tagline if it is though don't yeah. take it I just I <laughs> just, just right now yeah. <laughs> yeah. we think about the iPhone's been around 10 years it's yeah. into its 11th year now so like it has completely revolutionised the way in which we consume content because yeah. we're connected to these devices all of the time the next iteration is going to be voice AI and artificial intelligence and how we um, talk to yeah. machines so so it's coming so f- five years from now we're going to be yeah. doing this podcast probably through voice AI and well I'm <laughs> three I'm, robots I'm still yeah. holding out for just having my own studio in my bed so that I don't have to ever leave the room you, so the human interaction that you want in your day to day as well I, you guys can come over to my bedroom it's fine but Gillian do you think that that is working do you think them and I don't want to use the word um, beg but I can see a lot of them there's definitely a pleading air about it at times when it comes to walk down to the shop and pick us up and stuff like this do you think that's going to work or do you think that eventually is just going to catch up well I think it's I suppose it's messaging that says that um, newspapers are better quality than the content that you find online I mean it's pushing that message and I can understand why you would do that Um, and probably when the kind of digital products were just emerging five years ago maybe maybe there was a discrepancy between the quality that you would get in your traditional print media and what you can access online. That clearly is not the case anymore. And even you look at um, the likes of the New York Times, has 3 million subscribers um, and has made a huge, huge success of that business model. The, the, like People are, are just viewing um, even your, your big, global, instantly recognisable title names like the New York Times in a different capacity. And it's there's no... There's no capacity in my mind anymore to make an argument that what you find in a newspaper is inherently or intrinsically or in any other way better yeah. than something that you would you would access online. I mean, most publishers have now moved into digital spheres. There are very few mm. that are, are trying to um, stay only as print yeah. um, and everyone is actually nurturing their digital offerings and maybe uh, slightly subduing uh, their, their print offerings. So I think it slightly comes from a snobbishness and it's, as I said, it's a messaging to your consumer, your reader, your user, whatever you like to call them, that, uh, oh, we still got it. <laughs> you know, we we still got it. Um, and, and look, the nostalgia it works for for books for example Uh, like it's interesting that people still like to go into bookshops and and buy books The Last Bookstore it's a great shop (laughs) Exactly Um, so there's definitely a a time and a place for that and and there are some titles um, glossy magazines that are still holding firm I would say Um, some of the Condé Nast titles like Vogue um, their their sales are they're not rising but I suppose yeah they are holding Holding steady steady, and they have a very strong brand behind that and they have a very strong social presence and And a very strong digital offering and they're diversifying you know where they where the audience would find them. Before we move on to um, our final kind of tweet of the week, I do want to just touch on that because you touched on it there. I mean, you've talked about it before, Gillian, as like the great 
church-state divide in terms of commercial and editorial um, when it comes to the digital kind of landscape. Um, and this is particularly interesting, I think, for you and for Maxwell Media, and it's to do with your changing role. So um, you are now a publisher mm. in her.ie. Yeah. So, I mean, just explain that a little bit and explain how we've moved on from the position of editor, just focusing on editorial, and then acknowledging and kind of bringing the commercial side of things into our day-to-day work? Well, I think it's it's because a lot of advertising and marketing has actually moved towards great content mm-hmm. um, and that uh, the days of obviously selling a half-page ad in your newspaper are are long gone and, and sales and, and commercial activity uh, in conjunction with publishers is so much more complex now. Um, and really that feeds into great editorial skills and a great um, content-focused mindset. And so editors are, are incredibly well-placed now to actually sell their brands because they know the audience best. They're dealing with uh, content day in, day out. They know what performs, what doesn't. Um, And I always say, because you've got that direct live line to your user, you know, we can see trends and how quickly they change. And what's really, really popular this month on Her.E might not be all that popular uh, next month or or the month after. And when you've got your finger on the pulse like that, you can obviously adapt so quickly to preferences and, and that all feeds into how you generate revenue from, from publishing. Um, for me, I guess I've always been interested in the business side of publishing as well. And I remember when I was with the, with the Irish Daily Mail and I edited a section that um, was on health and fitness and diet and even new surgeries and that. Um, and on the, you know, the paper would sell an extra 5,000 copies on the day that that went out. And I loved that. And I loved seeing what were the, the editions that sold more copies? What were the splashes on the front page? What were the blurbs? Like, is it promotional activities? You know, newspapers used to give out CDs and, and that kind of, uh, you know, trying to get more people to buy the paper. I was always really engaged in that side of news papers. It didn't have to be, mm. but I was always interested in what sold more papers. You know, Wednesday's edition was it a simply the case of there was a big story that day or was it something else? Um, and that's that's always been really a, a huge fascination of mine. So I think that, that that streak has always been there, the kind of the, the business side of publishing. Um, and now what's brilliant about being at Maximum is that I have the opportunity to, uh, to embrace both components of what makes a great publisher, which is absolutely great content that draws in the masses, that gets eyes on the page, that gets people engaging day in, day out with the brand in whatever capacity that might be, whether it's a video, whether it's a piece inside, a feature, um, social activity, Um, but also being highly engaged then with the uh, commercial and revenue side of the brand um, and being able to nurture both elements is is huge. And it's Mm. it's definitely a publishing first in Ireland. Um, It has... It does occur, uh, has previously occurred in the UK, the US. Uh, The example that I use is is probably Martin Clark from Mail Online, who is very much a Fleet Street old school editor, Mm. but he is publisher of Mail Online. And so he has that dual role, I suppose, of being... Uh, head of content, but also a commercial director, um, and he, you know, he fulfills a CEO role essentially in yeah. Mail Online. But he, he's referred to as a publisher, and I suppose that's a nod to his very strong journalistic content background. Um, it's not a role for everyone, and I, and I, you know, I would say that it's not. I'm not suggesting that mm. every editor. Well, some journalists the they pot- love to get all sanctimonious. Well, and, I was going to ask, be like, about- oh, well, how does that affect your cre- 
credibility I was gonna uh, as ask a journalist. You about that. As, I, as an editor and also the three of us yeah. as, as journalists, like, well, is it is it something that you battle with, the uh, balance I, between commercial and editorial? We were chatting about this just before uh, recording this um, and I worked in the public uh, service uh, broadcasting for over 10 years, for mm-hmm. 11 years, right? So I know better than anyone you know, what it means to do journalism that has uh, very little commercial requirements. Mm-hmm. Right? You can, you, it's an absolute luxury. Yeah. You have the luxury of being able to just focus on the journalism and not necessarily have to be led by uh, uh, the stats and yeah. the traffic and the audience and all that stuff. You want to obviously still get an audience for your work and, and good journalism will do that. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I, I kind of balk or I eye roll a little bit at these journalists who are there sitting on their thrones and getting all sanctimonious with us about... Um, whether or not we should have an open mind towards the commercial end of things because if we didn't there would be no jobs Yeah, you know and the way I look at it is now I'm working in Mashable and I'm learning a lot about the business side of things Mm -hmm. Mashable was acquired at the end of uh, last year by a company called Ziff Davis and you know they would have a strong uh, e-com model that they use as well as editorial integrated marketing and then commercial and sponsorship and you know lots of different uh, revenue streams and like diversifying how we how we make money and I just think like editors now um, do have a responsibility to understand how they can run a successful business too yeah. you know without compromising your editorial like at the end of the day I'm still not going to change the way I produce a story if a client wants to sponsor a video series they're not going to have any editorial input you know yeah. like I'll still be very very robust about that kind of thing um, It's if it's a piece of editorial content grant if it's branded content or if it's sponsored or something else you know uh, that's a whole other thing I think that's key and I think that's why it's it's good that there are women who are journalists as well moving into these positions of power because like you will look out for the content essentially. It has has always happened to an extent. I Mm. mean, uh, as Amory rightly highlights, some traditional journalists can be quite on their high horse about this. But I absolutely remember being in in conferences for, for, you know, in traditional uh, spheres and for newspapers and the editor making decisions based on who was advertising the paper. I mean, that has always happened in the history of publishing. If there is a story and if it's not, if it's not really a groundbreaking story, I mean, this is a difference if you have some incredible scoop that you know there's a responsibility as a publisher to get out there into the public sphere, then probably very little, if you're a great editor, will stop you from doing that. But mm. there are also lots of stories that you, you know, they're, maybe they're, they're of interest or they're entertaining or they're funny, but are they absolutely going to break the mould? M- maybe not. And in which case you do look at them in a different capacity. Mm. And if those same stories might compromise or in any way threat a great commercial relationship you have, there is absolutely, you need to make those calls. And it's maybe a little bit on a case-by-case basis. But the word I would use is transparency. Like, so long as you're transparent about what you're doing, you know, if it's branded content and it's very, very clearly labelled as such, then the audience doesn't necessarily have an issue or a problem with that. I've consumed lots of uh, branded content online that I've really enjoyed, but I've known that it's branded or that it's sponsored, you know. Um, So, you know, authenticity and good storytelling uh, is important. And also, yeah, again, back to the sanctimonious thing of... um, Oh, only producing really highbrow, uh, really cutting edge uh, investigative journalism. Uh, businesses are, are not necessarily structured or set up just for that. Yes, mm-hmm. we all aspire to want to do that. I want to produce original journalism. My mm-hmm. background is in doing nothing but original journalism. 
But at the end of the day, in order to facilitate that to happen, you often need to recognise that there are other aspects of the business that need to be fulfilled as well. Yeah. Speaking of hybrid journalism, we didn't even get to talk about clickbait. And now we really oh. have to wrap up. So I don't have, <laughs> I don't have time. Um, but before we go, I do want to talk about our tweet of the week. So this is a tweet that we think really taps into the cultural moments of what's happening in society. And it's from our own Jade Hayden, who is a writer with her.ie. So Ash Jade Hayden tweeted, the promos from Love Island 2005 are giving me a stress migraine. That's it. And then... Oh, was this the, the, the throwback to 2000, yes. 2005? And then you see the <gasps> likes of Calvest, <laughs> Fran Cosgrave, Grosgrove, Cosgrave, Paul Danan, I think. I don't know how to pronounce his name. And Lee Sharp. I think it's Lee Sharp. Mm. Anyway, decked out in their 2005 finest. The tweet has garnered 22,000 likes, 6.9 thousand retweets. So I think it's safe to say that that's a cultural moment. But 100%. I just thought it was brilliant. And Gillian, you had a great observation about the difference between 2018's Love Island and 2005's Love Island mm. and that is well, shirts for one. Well, shirts for one. Yeah. Um, no, do you know what? I thought, I looked at these lovely lads from 2005 and my God, they definitely have never seen the inside of a gym but that's actually a good thing. Like, I'm looking yeah. at the guys now on Love Island. What size are they? It's not a natural body shape. They are so buff They're and it, huge, it got me yeah. thinking. Those, you know, we, we for years have spoken and rightly so about the pressures on women to have a certain body shape um, and that the insecurities that women often feel, especially younger, maybe teenage girls. Um, and maybe the conversation needs to start happening in the same capacity for men because 2005, just the lads, you know. This is no, pre, no. pre-Instagram days. Pre-Instagram I think it's really days. interesting. We, I, were ta- I was talking about this this morning in my editorial meeting, how, you know, this the sequences when they're introducing all of the various different uh, contestants. They have like their Instagram and the like, the little heart coming up on the screen. And yeah. So it's very much led. Instagram is leading the culture a- oh, around this. Yeah. And um uh, Niall uh, in it he, he said to Love one of the Niall. new ones he's like you, you actually look like uh, a girl on Instagram but in real life and so it's this kind of thing with what we <laughs> so see on Inst- comparing them to what we see on Instagram yeah, yeah. like this constructed kind of airbrushed look filtered but then put into a television show I know which is really interesting and a lot of people are pointing out that there's a real lack of body diversity on the programme oh yeah you know, we, we wrote that, about that on site like, yeah just, and it kind of points to this thing like oh well if you want to find love then you've just got to be outrageously skinny or very very stacked and, you know, look a certain way. Um, so, you know, you wonder well, what kind of message does that send out? Again, I don't want to get sanctimonious about it either because this is the world we're living in and actually it's a reflection on the human condition. Mm. So, like, don't blame the tech and don't blame the Instagram and don't blame, like, society. Like, we are responsible for this. We're what feeling I, it. We're feeling But what I found so funny about the whole thing is that it turns out Callum Best Oh, he's, like, the, stacked now. Yeah, Have you seen the before and the after? the most emotionally <laughs> stable person because he had absolutely no qualms going on screen in like a little white singlet with absolutely no talent. But lately he's now uh, publishing his pictures of like what he was like back then, then and, and now, now what he's like now and he's become okay, so that Instagram um, you know another version Ken doll or whatever you would they describe it. They all look it. quite um, like you, you politely call it dewy but it 
in actual fact, they just look really sweaty in those promo I photographs. Think it's oil. Wait, is it oil? Wait, oh, do you mean the 2005 Oh, yeah, yeah. It's oh, that's just sweat and bad lighting. Yes. Yeah, for sure. What struck me was the blue background. It was like, that was what was giving me a headache, actually. It was the kind of this really cheap looking background and actually, aquamarine blue. The pictures of the presenters weren't in the tweet that Jay did, but it was Kelly Brook, I think, yes. and oh, the guy from Northern Ireland, what's his name? Patrick Keelty. Yes. Oh, and, right, and they yeah, were like yeah. standing si- side by oh, side I like this. my arms like yeah. this, didn't even roll. They weren't on a beach, but they were on a beach. It was the worst <laughs> Photoshop that I've ever seen. Worst I just screen. Love yeah. Island is fascinating from oh, like a, an I'm anthropological fast. view, yeah. like, you know, not to try to overly intellectualise it or be too esoteric. But I think we should intellectualise it. I think it is actually fa- a fascinating mm. play on what's actually happening in our society now and what we're interested in. I know. There, was, know? A, there was a really funny observation. One of the lads, I think it's Jack um, and Danny Dyer's daughter. Oh yeah, Jack is the, the guy Dyer. with the really white teeth who yes, the, yes, the yes. voiceover <laughs> on it keeps on banging on about. Exactly. They are very white. Yeah, they're yeah, very yeah. white. So he paid a fortune for them. Yeah, he sells <laughs> pens for a living, okay? And so he um, was talking to Danny Dyer's daughter, Danny Dyer, brilliant um, so and he she said to him look I'm just going to tell you Danny Dyer is my father and he was like no way like proper shocked and then of course the internet went and found him liking Instagram pictures of Danny Dyer's daughter Danny Dyer from like months back so yeah. stung rapid like he knew that it was Danny Dyer. can't Dyer's get away daughter. with anything this is the thing and same with uh, is it Adam the guy the guy who came in as a single guy the, at the end the guy who I've never been on Geordie exactly, Shore exactly but apparently he'd been an extra on Geordie Shore way oh. back when yeah, it's, so n- it's not fair city it's not fair city <laughs> but you know <laughs> Anyway, lads, that was our cultural tweet of the week. I'm thank looking, you, Jade. I, I'm look, thank you, Jade Hayden. I'm looking forward to next week. That is all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to my panellists, Anne-Marie Tomchak and Gillian Fitzpatrick. Thank you to all the lads here at Joe Media for putting up with us and making us feel at home. We'll be back in Ireland for next week's show and we'll chat to you then.